So, <laughs> I have three kids. Gotten to experience uh, the joys um, of watching infants grow into young men. Tell you what, children learning to walk, though, it's a disaster. I remember my kids, uh, each of them were different. None of it was graceful. Ewan was an accident waiting to happen. As soon as he could pull himself upright, he would sprint. He would run full tilt from whatever piece of furniture he was holding on to to where he wanted to go. There were so many bruises on that little kid's head. Tristan, on the other hand, <clears throat> Preferred to be moved by someone else. He would take these half steps in a direction <clears throat> and then sit down and just cry to be picked up. <clears throat> Seamus did his own thing. He always did. For the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about some of the details of what Paul calls walking worthy of what we've been called to. We're going to talk about sin and obedience. And we're going to call sin, sin, and talk about how deep that goes. And as we do, we have to make sure to keep in the front of our minds this tension that Paul has been developing from the beginning of this letter. It's very easy to open our Bibles to Ephesians 4 and view it in a vacuum, but it is not in a vacuum. Remember, he has told us that we are now new people, free from sin, new life, but we're infants who struggle to walk this new life. And we have to remember that it is thanks to the work of Christ. It's true that there is grace when we stumble. And actually, I will argue that it's exactly those false steps, those bruised foreheads, those helpless moments where we really learn how to walk well. So as we look at the application side of this, we have to keep that within the scope of the gospel. There are things we're called to do. And it's understood that we don't do them very well. And there's grace in the struggle. The next uh, few weeks actually are going to be application first kinds of sermons. We just have to remember how we got there. Three plus chapters of Paul reminding us that what we have, we have inherited from God through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus by this process of the Spirit applying this power to each of our lives as we work to grow up well in him. It's a bit of a mess. As we hear the instructions that Paul gives, let us not think that we're gifted in this walk. These sections should be convicting for all of us. 
we should recognize that we are stumbling along this path. And we have to be okay with that idea that that stumbling is important to how we learn. So, finally, after three and a half chapters, Paul gets to some of that truth and love that we're supposed to do a lot to one another. And really, um, this section, I think, spans from 4 verse 25 all the way to 5 verse 21. It flows together. It could be one sermon, though it's going to be a long enough sermon. Because in, in some ways, the do's and don'ts in Ephesians are really simple. There's a lot of nuance to them. And so we're going to look at the passage um, in three parts. The third part will be a little bit separate. But this week and next week, we're going to look at what walking looks like. And it's going to be two parallel sermons discussing two sides of what holiness looks like in the church. And these two general calls are pretty clear and actually pretty well laid out in our theological understanding. In fact, if you are members of this church or have been members of another PCA church, you took a vow to study these very things, the purity and peace of the church. That's how Paul's exhortations lay out. In our passage today, um, from 25 to the end of chapter 4, he speaks to our responsibility to the peace of the body of Christ, and then there's this wonderful little connecting couplet in 5, 1, and 2, and then starting in 5, 3 through verse 8, he speaks of our responsibility to the purity of the church. And it's as Paul is addressing the Ephesians primarily to answer this question, what is the church? We have to realize that. There's a pretty corporate nature to these exhortations. They're somewhat generalized. Other places, Paul gets a little bit more detailed about what our responsibilities to God and to one another are. Here, it's this is what it looks like to be the church. And we should see in these instructions a description of the nature of the church as a whole and then consider how we individual members realize this in the body. So today we're talking about peace. And I think it's telling that Paul begins with peace. Our public profession of faith that we use, those five questions, switch up the order. We say purity and peace rather than peace and purity. I don't know why. I could probably could have studied why. But here, Paul, who has spent so much effort to show us precisely that it's as a unified body that we grow, he begins by addressing the peace of the church, the unity of the church. Because I think Paul would argue, I think he does argue, that without peace in the church, we can't really grow in purity the way God intends us to. So he exhorts us to live well together, and, and I think he does it in four very particular ways here. First, he tells us that we're to live in honesty and vulnerability. He says, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. 
Second, he tells us to be sinless in our anger. Be angry and do not sin. Third, he talks about how we are to work and to give rather than taking. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. And then finally, we're to live in a way where we speak in ways that build up one another. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for the building up. Now, each of these is a little bit more nuanced than the straight commands, and that's what I want us to look at today. Paul starts this whole thing with speaking the truth. Clearly a call to honesty, right? At the very least, we have to affirm that lies do not befit the people of God. And anyone who's had any relationship for more than five minutes knows that nothing tears a relationship apart more than lies. But what Paul is calling the church to here is far more than just don't tell lies. Because telling the truth, of course, is much bigger than not speaking falsely. Being truthful with one another means being honest, open, transparent, and vulnerable. It means telling you things that I don't want to tell you. Things like owning my struggles and my hurts, my expectations. There is as much untruth in the truths that we keep to ourselves as there is in the lies that we speak. We know this experientially as well, right? I think I've seen relationships crumble due to lack of transparency as often as due to outright lies. We can't expect to be a unified people if we are dishonest, if we are closed and distant from one another. We can't expect to be unified if we are distrustful and suspicious, which, of course, we are. Because these are hard cultural norms for us to break. It's not as simple as saying, just be honest with one another. All right, I've done my job. Our dishonesty, and, and we're all very dishonest, even the most truthful of us. Our dishonesty is baked into our culture, isn't it? And when it's baked into our culture, dishonesty becomes the only way we survive. Think about it. If you catch me in a lie, you don't trust me anymore, right? Even a little lie. Some of you have found that when you ask me how I'm doing, I try to be really brutally honest. Because like, when you say, how are you doing? And I say, oh, I'm fine. And it's coming from the lips of someone who you know has just had a train wreck of a week. Well, you start to assume that every time you ask them how they're doing, they're not going to tell you, right? You start to assume that I'm not going to get to know you in that way. But if we look at the other side, why do I lie? 
Why do I hide things from you in the first place? Well, obviously it's because I'm wicked. It's not untrue. We have to address the sin here to address obedience. But it's not just that in my sinful flesh I am a liar, and in my sinful flesh I am a liar. But when I don't trust you, when you don't trust me, when you suspect that I don't really have your back, maybe I'm looking for a flaw to exploit or maybe I'm just going to judge you. Well, why would you be honest with me? Right? And this is the, the culture that we live in. This is our human nature. So creating a culture of honesty in the church goes a lot further than, well, we don't lie. It means speaking truth to one another and creating, speaking truth to one another, but also creating a culture of love and vulnerability and safety. It means handling our truth with care and integrity, but also handling one another's truth with care and integrity. Now, sidebar here. One of the things that I have found about Grace is that she is a safe church compared to a lot of churches that I've been to. But it's still a struggle that we have. It's not something that's maintained if we don't intentionally make ourselves safe and honest. And it's only in an honest, transparent, and safe church where we can grow in peace and actually grow in purity, as we'll talk about next week. I think that's the reason this exhortation comes first for Paul. Because the rest of his peace exhortations and his purity exhortations kind of rest on the church being a place where we can be honest with one another. Next, Paul addresses anger. Oh boy, we get this one wrong too. I heard one preacher talking about this and saying that Christian tendency towards anger is just Christians don't get angry. We get disappointed, we get frustrated, we get sad, but never angry. Those of you who are chuckling, I see that holds true for you. He points out this is not consistent with Paul's command. Paul says, be angry. He does. He doesn't say don't be angry. He says, be angry and do not sin. Suggesting that Christians don't get angry is not a good reading. That not getting angry actually might threaten the peace of the church. Now I have a little bit of criticism for this pastor. I have seen this tendency in the church, but I actually think it's more cultural. It has to do with our other parts of our cultural demographic than it does with just being in the church. Other Christian demographics um, are all about anger. We get that part down. It's the do not sin part that we don't do very well. So we have to get both sides of this equation, and Paul's pretty descriptive about anger here and what it should look like. In verse 31, he lists three types of anger. 
He says to put away bitterness, wrath, and anger. And that last one is translated kind of generically because the word in Greek is kind of all over the place. But I think indignation is a good way of looking at that third one. Bitterness, wrath, and indignation. Keller helped my understanding here. He defined anger as indignation and zeal for justice. That doesn't sound so bad, right? But then he, can, he goes on to explain anger as energy aroused in defense of something and argues that what makes anger without sin hinges on what are we defending and where are we releasing our anger? And that was a really good rubric. Why are you angry? What are you defending? Is it because you've seen real evil and sin and injustice? Or maybe is it because you've been disrupted, feel slighted, or overlooked? If we're honest with each other, we're called to honesty after all, right? 99 times out of 100, it's the second category. We should be angry at evil and injustice, and if we aren't, that's sin as well. It's an apathetic and a selfish sin. But most of the time, when we claim to be angry at evil, what we're really mad at is how evil is disrupting me. I think this is where the bitterness comes from in verse 31. When we are angry because of how our brother or sister wrongs us, rather than how evil hurts them and the church and the kingdom, we become opposed to them. We become enemies. And we allow anger to fester and grow and chew us up and bitterness must be rooted out of the church. Keller talks about this imaginary dad, maybe it was himself, I don't know. It's probably me. Who's mad at his kids because they're misbehaving at bedtime. They're being dishonest about keeping the lights on, disobediently playing instead of trying to sleep. And the dad who is angry he's very angry, is really angry because his quiet time has been disrupted. Is there a problem? Yes. Does dishonesty and disobedience need to be addressed? Therefore, is anger appropriate? Absolutely. But what is he really mad about? (laughs) It's sinful anger. And it can easily fester to the point where his kids turn into these terrible little goblins who want nothing more but to ruin his peace. And that bitterness ruins the peace of the household far more than the thing that he was angry at. That one stings a little bit. (laughs) But it's not just bitterness. The next question is, where do we direct that energy? What should we direct the energy at? Well, the problem itself, right? The problem of dishonesty and disobedience in the children, how that sin will disrupt and dismantle their lives and desire to see them walk well, that's where the energy should go. But usually we allow the energy of our anger to attack something else. One of two things. We either put it towards them. Paul calls this wrath in verse 31. Or, particularly for those good Christians who don't get angry, We internalize it. We push that energy back at ourselves. 
This is what Paul calls anger or indignation. This is what we do almost all the time, one or the other, either allowing our Christians don't get angry to chew us up on the inside or our Christian anger to destroy the ones that we're mad at. But the church cannot grow and we cannot grow if we are full of misdirected and selfish anger. We should be angry at the things that hurt us instead of with one another. Angry at the ways that we have been harmed. That's not what we need to do. And Paul says very clearly here that this is a place of power for the devil. That's a strong statement. A foothold for harming Christ's church. So be angry and do not sin. Then Paul starts addressing the thief. And we have to nuance this one too, though I don't think we have to spend as much time as we did on anger. We're very quick to make this an exhortation about the value of industry. How American of us. It means that Christian, the Christian is to, to hard, hard, hard work. Yes, there are scriptural encouragements and commands to work. We were made to work. Even before sin in the garden, Adam and Eve worked. It's biblical to be productive. That has nothing to do with what Paul's talking about here. Zero. This is not a command to produce as much as possible, to make money and profit, etc. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. Now, there's nothing wrong with making money. There's nothing wrong with laboring. But somewhere along the way, we've taken this and we've made this correlation between how much money we've earned through honest work and the treasures that we have in heaven. And oh boy, is that a misstep. This is not a subtle jab at the needy, the poor, and those who receive assistance. Actually, Paul speaks to the thief here, and when he turns to working, what's he supposed to do? To give it away. (laughs) To make that kind of jab at the poor and the needy would be to undermine the justice that is present all throughout the law. the, the thing here is Paul is trying to talk about how we live in terms of our resources, particularly here in the why for the hard work. Why is a thief to turn to hard work? So that he may have something to share with anyone who is in need. The peace-threatening behavior that Paul highlights is not receiving something you haven't worked for. It's not sinful to receive generosity or support. The behavior that threatens the peace of the church is taking for yourself. He sees us working hard, not for our own good, but for the sake of others. He sees selflessness.
but he sees the way of the Gentile here as one of selfishness. What can I get for myself? And it makes sense. The way of the world is scarcity. But if we are under, a, under that, power of, that power of scarcity, we have to get what we can to survive. We have to put ourselves first. We have to lie, cheat, and steal and earn by whatever means possible. But the worthy way is a way of generosity. One where I work hard for the sake of my sister. Or I work hard to make sure that my brother has enough. And that makes sense because the way of Christ is not scarcity but abundance. And if we share in his power, then we give out of overflow. This may be pushing a little bit too hard, but I do that sometimes. I think the thief pictured here might be more like some who we would consider hardworking today. Because for Paul, the thief takes what belongs to God and lines his own pockets, rather than works to steward God's wealth for the flourishing of those around him. The peace of the church is deeply threatened by greed, and if that one bugs you, hold on. Because greed is the only behavior that we will see cross the peace and purity line and get addressed again next week. The church cannot grow and flourish when we are out for ourselves. Let the thief no longer take, but give. And finally, Paul addresses our speech. And I think we missed the point on this one as well. What is the corrupting speech that Paul is naming here? Well, I'll tell you what it isn't. It is not a list of culturally defined words that Christians don't say. It's not swear jar words. Not suggesting that Christians should go out there and curse like sailors. Flippant, unmoderated, and for shock value speech is not becoming of God's people. However, in my experience, I do think we need to lighten up when it comes to our view on particular words. I don't think there's a biblical call to making lists of we say these and we don't say these. What Paul is talking about is not words. He's talking about language that corrupts. And what does it corrupt? Well, contextually, it corrupts the purity and unity of the body. In verse 31, he names it. He says, clamor and slander. Paul is speaking directly against divisive speech, speaking ill of one another, slander, gossip, and rumor, speech that elevates me over you, or speech that puts you down and belittles you. Hear me, I don't care what particular words are or are not a part of your vocabulary. These things are far worse than any dirty word you can say. You could have never uttered a curse word in your life, but gossip and slander and speak divisively and put your brother and sister down. And your speech is more corrupting, more filthy, more grievous to the Holy Spirit than that of your foul-mouthed friends. In fact, I always wonder if I should go here when things are online. 
I remember having a conversation years ago with someone who was, and the conversation really bothered me. They were talking about another believer and their language. And she was lambasting them. Saying that using that kind of language was disgusting and unchristian. And it really made her question if they knew Jesus at all. I didn't say anything. And I feel really bad that I didn't say anything. What I wish I would have said to her is that her speech in that moment was far more offensive to God than anything that this brother had said. Because what Paul is exhorting us to is not the right vocabulary, it's not holy words, but speech that builds one another up, speech that offers forwards the grace of God to those who hear. And before you argue that we can clearly define which language does and doesn't do this, Paul's not so sure. He exhorts us to language that fits the occasion. That's a curveball. Making what appropriate speech is a bit of a moving target. And in a couple of weeks, we'll talk about how Paul uses wisdom as a tool for approaching these moving targets in life. But for now, we have to understand that Paul is calling us away specifically from divisive language, language that puts each other down, language that isolates and separates into language that builds up and offers grace. We can't expect the church to grow we do not speak in ways that hold us together. And Paul tells us that to remain in these divisive ways, these ways of the Gentiles, he says, these ways of the world apart from Jesus Christ, dishonesty and bitterness and wrath and indignancy and greed and clamor and slander and malice is to grieve the Holy Spirit. And oh boy, are we in trouble. Because we all struggle with this, right? There's not a single person sitting in this room who doesn't struggle probably with every one of those things to some extent. But at least one or two of them really bad. Do you struggle with honesty and transparency? Do you struggle with wrath and indignation and bitterness? Do you struggle with greed and divisive Langley? Langley. Freudian slip, divisive language. Surely I have grieved the Holy Spirit, even this morning. Enough to leave me in a tenuous position. Do you feel the same? Or can you honestly tell me that you are a picture of the peace of church? Honest, sinless in anger, giving, uplifting in your speech. We don't walk like this. We are babies pulling ourselves up on furniture for the first time. Some of us chasing this walk at a breakneck speed, falling on our faces over and over again. And some of us taking a couple of scary steps and then sitting back down to cry for help again and again. And if the Holy Spirit is grieved by these things, then we have grieved the Holy Spirit. But, lest we despair. Remember the hoops that Paul has made us jump through for three and a half chapters to get to this point. We cannot read chapters four and five in a vacuum. 
it would be impossibly discouraging because all we could walk away with today is how grieved we have made the Holy Spirit. But what we know is that we are called to walk in a new way because in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, we are new people. Even though we fall over and over again, we are still God's children, heirs to his kingdom and power. And so when we see all the ways our lives, our walks, our church fails to be the peace-filled body that we're called to, we cast our eyes to the cross and we see what Jesus Christ did. And that's why verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5 sit in the middle of this purity and peace sections and why we'll include them today and next week. Because they show us what it really looks like to grow in our practice of peace. Therefore, Paul says, <clears throat> be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. <clears throat> Excuse me. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We don't do these things because Paul gives us a list and says, now go do it. We do them because we have seen something in Jesus Christ that compels us. We have seen a God worth imitating, but not only that, we've seen a God who gave of himself so that we could imitate, so that we could be restored one baby step at a time into his image. And he did so by being the Prince of Peace. By living without any moral obligation, mind you, to live among us in this peaceful way. Living in a way that unified us together with him. <clears throat> he spoke truth, yes, never lying, but also opening to us those truths which were a mystery until we came to know him. He was righteous in his anger, angry at sin and death and evil, but putting all of those energies, all the energy of his wrath and God's wrath towards ending them forever, actually by putting the energy of that wrath on himself on the cross. He didn't steal. I mean, he couldn't. Everything belonged to him. But not only that, he gave it all up. All that he had so that we might have more than we need. He spoke, and that's pretty huge by itself. But in his speech, he always builds up. Every word a foundation for the unity that we have in him. And he did all this for us. He sacrificed himself, offered himself up so that we might be made into his body a body that is characterized by his peace. So get up. Brush yourself off. And look towards him. I love about our vow, order one way or the other. I love that we're not called to maintain or pursue or keep the purity and peace of the church. The word we use is a funny one, but it's appropriate. 
We are called to study it. To study the purity and peace of the church. Because Jesus Christ is the purity and peace of the church. And we are stumbling along as we go, called to keep our eyes on him. And in that, we begin to walk together in peace. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have not just given us words to to heed and to um, follow, but you have actually given us in your son what we need to walk along this path. Lord, we know that we are imperfect. We know that we still walk very often in the way of this world. We know that when we try to walk the worthy path, we stumble and we fall and we need to be carried. God, we pray that you would continue to love us and be patient with us and lead us along this path towards peace. Pray this for the, name of your, for the sake of your kingdom and glory, in the name of your Son. Amen.